Turn your radio on, turn your radio on And listen to the music in the air Yes, let's see, I think I'll turn over to the loudspeaker River Radio this is only a test. This radio station will remain on the air, day and night. Across the Thames Valley. Turn on the radio and let's have some music. Turn it on the way up. River. Turn it on the way up. Radio. Spread the word. Well, a very good afternoon to you. It's one o'clock. It's Thursday. You're listening to Uncorked with Brian and Kath. Yes. That was a funky start, Kath. I, I I pressed a different button and I got a new intro. Oh, like, do you know what? I quite yeah. liked it. I haven't heard that one. I was thinking, when does it end? When does it end? How oh, long is it? Oh, no, keep <laughs> it in. I got all frisky for a minute. Anyway, it's um, it's wine. Uncorked. It's un- we're back. What are we talking about today? And look, look, Brian, the time. I know. Well, you know, we have to con- confess, it's nothing to do with us. We have Sam, the technical we, wizard. We have a technical wizard today. In so the studio. And that's why everything's working. Mm. <laughs> yes, they are. So, um, what are we talking about today? Well, you wanted to go off the beaten track. Yeah. And then from being off the beaten track, sort of skip back onto the main track. Yeah, I did. So we're doing Bordeaux. Well, I think it's good because, you know, there's so many different bits of Bordeaux that you could almost say that some of those bits are off the beaten track. Well, yes, but we're going to take a top-line view today. Rather than diving into the obscure bits right. <laughs> and just confusing everyone, we're going to go, we're going to take an aerial view. We're in a drone and we're going to look at Bordeaux from the top level and then maybe next week we'll, well, we'll, we'll meander a bit. OK, well, that makes sense, doesn't yeah. it? Because you've, you've got to understand the basics before you can meander a bit, I, I always say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> OK, so we've got Bordeaux coming up and they'll be doing the uh, matching with the menu. We always do that. Crisps. Yes. Crisps and more crisps, because that's where your heart lies. Crisps. What crisps the go way, with the a way, fine Bordeaux? The way Bordeaux. to Brian's heart is, I'm afraid. A but monster we, munch. Yeah, we have another. We have a, a healthy guest with us in here as well today, sitting in, and, and, and I don't know, yeah, your, your crisp obsession might be deemed to be uh, not always in moderation and therefore not always healthy. That's it. <laughs> tell everybody about my uh, but anyway before that <laughs> you um, tell everybody every week <laughs> yeah that's true anybody listens will know before that we're going to dive in aren't we we are do you know what we're diving in on blending we dive are in to river radio so we're going to be blending now I have learnt from harsh experience that wine people, mm-hmm. they get very upset if you call it a mix. Well, I don't, I don't mind. Really? I mean, I mean I suppose it's... Because I used to call it a mix accidentally. And, go, and they were like, Ooh, It's a blend. You don't mix it, it's you blend. blend it. You blend it, yeah. So why, let's start off then with what might seem like an obvious question, but why would you want to spend all that time? Because we, we spoke yes, uh, yesterday, last week, about the, uh, the vineyards and how much effort and uh, and how hard it can be to get it right and you're you're making all this wonderful wine that you've spent all that time and effort on and then you go and blend it with another one why would you do it why why yeah why not oh all right no that's not entirely true why do we blend well firstly lots and lots of famous wines are blends so it obviously works and there's a reason why they do it and you're right to ask the question but there's lots of reasons why they do it so in some places it's because of the climate and it works well to blend because you can mitigate the difference and the variations with the vintages and still come out with a wine of a standardized quality because each grape has different characteristics and brings different things to the blend. So this is when your 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 vintage um isn't quite 
the uh, the standard level because of the weather because of various factors yeah but it's more that it's just different so yeah you can start blending but people always usually associate blending primarily with grape varieties so you're blending different grape varieties together and that's significant but you can also blend different vintages different vineyards different regions so it becomes it becomes a a significant tool in a winemaker's toolbox so you could you can actually well, I suppose you can, I mean, but you would, as a winemaker, blend the same variety of grape, but just from different vineyards. Yes, you can do, yeah. Oh, oh, so wow. Brian's looking at me like I'm pulling his leg again. Well, you never know, do you? <laughs> I'll mention Umami later, just so oh, I'm saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you can have different vineyard parcels. Yeah. Um, so when we had Henry Lacewaite on, and he talked about how they work on a single site but different parts of the vineyard have different characteristics. So they are planted with different grape varieties. But even then, within those grape varieties, you can have areas of the vineyard that will behave differently for the same grape variety. So you can blend those two things together. So if you've got an end of the vineyard, for example, that's got lots of trees and acts like a windbreak, it might have a slightly warmer microclimate. And so the grapes will ripen more readily. Another part of the vineyard could be more waterlogged. So the grapes ripen or has more water, they ripen slightly more slowly, so they bring more acid to the blend, whereas one brings more ripeness. So you, those two things blended together create a unified whole. And that's the whole goal of blending, is to create a sense of balance in a unified whole. Okay, so in layman's terms, it could be, could be said that you're, you're actually just covering up the tat. <laughs> I don't quite know how to answer that one, Brian. <laughs> covering up the tat. No, 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 no. No, you're looking for equilibrium and harmony. Equilibrium and harmony. Okay, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. We'll Sounds much that. better than covering up the tat, doesn't it? Well, no, because you think about it, you can you can blend to create a wine that's more accessible. So wines that you can drink earlier. So you can add more fruit, work with grape varieties or grapes that have got less tannin to mediate elements of tannin. Because ultimately, you still need to often produce a volume that's cost effective, and it helps you do that. On the other side of the fence, you've got people at the other end of the spectrum who will be making wines with more tannin and more acidity. And the way they blend then, the the parcels that they use, have things been aged in oak, have they not been aged in oak? All those elements, those blending elements will decide whether or not the wine's going to have longevity as well. So... It can work sort of at both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, as you were saying that, I mean, I was, I was messing about a bit. But, um, Cover up the tat, uh, I yes. should hope so. There are some wines that, that are notorious for being blends, like Chateauneuf du Pape, yes. and, and I mean, there must be loads of other ones as well. Um, well, we'll, we'll go, we'll, we'll, I'm going to quiz you on all the, the wines with, with blends. Oh, you think, famous uh, wines which are blended. So are there... Are there Certain grape varieties that just go, that just work together and are the ones equally that you would never put together? Well, sometimes people put things together that you don't think will work and do work, but there's obviously classic blends and we'll be talking about one of those later with Bordeaux, one of your favourites. So obviously Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot are deemed to be a sort of a a match made in heaven Yeah, and they are blended quite frequently. Um, But let's take a rosé, for example. So Provence rosé is often a blend and it... It varies, but it's often Syrah, Mourvedre and Sanso, and they all bring different things to that blend. Champagne. Yeah. It's nearly, or not always, but it's nearly always a blend. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is blended. And actually within Champagne, you can often blend across vintages and because they have reserve wines, so they'll be added at the end of the, the production process, so they've got different vintages potentially in it. And then on top of that, you've got different vineyard sites and different soil types influencing and potentially different picking dates as well. So one wine could be a blend of different grapes, of different vineyard sites, different picking dates, different winemaking techniques, because there could be oak components. 
and different vintages. So five different blending elements that have to be thought about to create a final whole. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and how do they actually go about doing it? I mean, is it literally they just get a big tank of one and yeah. pour it in? <laughs> kind of. Is, um, is that literally well, what they do? Well, it does vary. So let's if we go way back, we talked briefly, I think, one week about field blends. And these are vineyards that are co-planted, so they're not necessarily... They're often older vineyards because they're sort of a, a selection of different grape varieties planted within the rows. Oh, really? Or across so the rows. They've, they've already started that blend yeah, in the vineyard? Almost, yeah, in the vineyard. And so if they oh. harvest all of those at the same time and they just co- they, they, they co-ferment them, then that becomes, that is in essence a blend. Yeah. Yeah, so for example, Lytton Springs from Ridge in California, you, if you go and walk around the vineyard, you'll notice that some vines do look different, and they're because they're not all Zinfandel. There's other vines in there as well, like Petite Syrah and things, and they come into that blend. Wow. But it's all in the vineyard already, and yeah. so the vintage variation will just depend on how those things but the, vary. So that's the first sort of blend, I suppose, that you could come across would be a field blend. Yeah. And it is, strictly speaking, potentially a blend of different grape varieties, therefore it's a wine that's blended. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't that in itself bring some problems in as much as different varieties of grapes would um would be ready sooner or later mm-hmm. or, or or need different conditions or different soils even um yeah yeah in different parts of the vineyard and that's what gives the wine so in what you could argue is that in though particularly an old vine vineyard they planted those things initially because it helps mediate those differences and so you will get a slight vintage variation across all the wines but it will have an innate vintage ca- a vineyard character so you'll know it's that place and they balance each other out naturally so you'll have a part of the vineyard that's slightly warmer a bit that's more undulating and free draining and so overall and it's co-fermented so there's a sense that it's not been blended later on so it's harmonious from day one so that's sort of the the, the advantages of a field blend wow so they do really so have you to... can start in the vineyard yeah um the next will be that people harvest and choose to co-ferment so they might look at what they've harvested and know that when they've picked that they've harvested it in the sugar levels all those elements and they'll choose to maybe then co-ferment it so you're blending pre-fermentation so you shove them all in together all the different grape varieties and let them do their thing from that moment onwards right so that's another uh, some would argue less precise, but sometimes it, it really seems to work. But the most common form of blending is when either individual vineyard parcels or individual grape var- and individual grape varieties from the vineyard are taken and fermented separately, and then they're blended post-fermentation. I, I do beg your pardon. <laughs> Oh, that was Sam, that everybody. Was Sam. He was just, it was nothing was to do with us. He was just standing up. <laughs> it was nothing to do with us. It was the door squeaking. I so, think. yeah. So anyway, back to those. So that's the more conventional way. So sometimes you'll go into a winery and they'll have different sized little tanks, like little mini tanks, because it's for a very small parcel. Because it's, And then you'll have different sized barrels. And when they taste, they'll taste at the end when things have had a period of ageing or élevage. And they'll then work out how they want the blend to taste. What they feel is most representative of either the wine that they're producing in the house, the style of the wine that they produce each year, you know, what is their signature? Mm-hmm. What sort of wine are they aiming for? And they'll work and blend considering all those elements and then they put the wines together and then basically, yeah, they start on a small scale, obviously, and then, yeah, they mix it on a big scale. Yeah, okay. So you can have a tank component blended with a component that's been in concrete, blended with something that's been in new oak, something that's been in older wood or larger wood. So all those elements bring slightly different characters to the wine. So there's so many different elements that can be used 
um, year on year. So it's not covering up the tat, it's achieving the best possible result. <laughs> That's what I meant. That's <laughs> what, what I you meant. meant, covering up the tat. <laughs> but, but it, so it's that really, blindsided me, that's a good one. <laughs> so it really is, it's, it's quite a, 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 yeah, a detailed and intricate yeah. sort of process to make, because if you are using something from mm. a concrete container and then with steel, that is a real subtle, that, the subtleties yeah. there are, and must it's, be it's minute. It's a strange alchemy though, blending wine. So, Sometimes when you've got, say, for example, you're making a Cab Merlot blend and you want it to be predominantly Merlot, you want something that's juicy and easy drinking, that isn't too high in tannins, but just needs a little bit more structure and definition because of the price point it's going to sit at and you want it to work better with food, not just on its own. So they, the component that you add, so you say, I'm going to add up the, the Cabernet Sauvignon a bit, and it can literally be a fraction of 1% or 2% more Cabernet in the blend is the perfect combination but if you put five percent in which doesn't seem like too much it's too much and the wine becomes obviously tannic so it's like a crazy alchemy sometimes as well and they have to they have to discover that every year experiment Mm. because because of the difference in yeah and it's an accumulative knowledge so the people who do it for a long time you know they're constant they 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 hold almost like an encyclopedia encyclopedic that's a big word knowledge of how things perform and how they perform differently in different vintages so if you're doing a blend of something like Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot and you have a particular type of harvest, you might find that you're, even you're just doing a straight Cabernet, that in a particular year the younger vines perform better than some of the older vines which bring a bit too much structure. So it's understanding how you're going to create your overall style and that actually it's not just a recipe that every year it's 5% this, 10% that, 20% this variety. It's a real skill. And the people who, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to do it. If you ever get the chance to do it, it's worth doing because it's a real learning curve. Um, because I don't, you'll ever walk away from a blending without having learned something. Yeah. And having your mind slightly blown because it is like, it's magician stuff. And going back to um, one of my earlier uh, thoughts was, are, are there any that might be surprising but just really work that surprised you as somebody who really knows their way around a vineyard? Yeah, recently we had a. We tasted a wine from Alsace, from a, the la- one of the largest family-owned wineries in Alsace, and it was um, remember, a Gewurz and Riesling blend, and they're not normally put together. And you thought, oh, is this going to work? And it really did. It was like sunshine in a glass, and they just got it right. Wow. So they're occasionally, because often those are separate varietals that from Alsace, you'll see them as single varietals. So yeah. you do come across blends that work, or someone puts a small percentage of Riesling into you know, a Syrah in Australia. Now, traditionally, occasionally from the Northern Rhone, the famous Syrahs there, they're deemed to be 100% Syrah. Um, but they put a little bit, particularly in Coke Rose, they used to put a bit of Viognier in, and the argument was, you know, it lifted it and made it more aromatic and lifted the aromas of the Syrah out. But a grower in Australia had put a small amount of Riesling in rather than Viognier, and it really worked. Wow. So I, I have heard of Viognier being yeah. used just, to, just to, what is it, just like 5% or something, or yeah, even less? a small amount, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so those sort of things work. But a famous example yeah. of, a, of a blend with lots is Krug. So Krug Champagne, so the non-vintage version of Krug, which is still a, a pretty penny, sort of one of the most famous Grand Marks. And the blend is obviously a, often a blend of different grapes, the key Champagne grapes of Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Meunier. And it's usually blended from 120 individual base wines sourced from various different vineyards. <laughs> and it can cover 10 or more different vintages when they use the reserve wines that they add at the end. Wow. Yeah, see that. That's and there's a complicated often make, there process. can be an, a, a different vessel component as well thrown into that mix, and then it has to after they've done that initial blending, before they add the different vintages, which happens at the end, they have to do a secondary fermentation and then decide 
And they're adding, obviously, a, a sweetening component with the dosage. So that, that's another element of blending that people don't often think about is that some wines, they do add sugar at the end or a sweetening element. It's not necessarily just sugar. It's usually a sweeter wine. Yeah, to act as a dosage. So, yeah, so there's so many. And things like port, if you think about port, the wine is fortified to stop fermentation. So they add great spirit, so let's say a brandy to it, to cease the fermentation because it elevates the alcohol levels to such a point that the yeast stops working. So you've got port, which is a blend of grape varieties. And then you're adding something else to it yeah. to hold the sweetness at the end. And you've got to get all of that right. So in essence, you're adding something else to the wine that becomes part of the thing. So it is in essence blended Sure. in that regard as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's another thing to think about. Do they, do they generally, would you say that, that red wines lend themselves better to blending or is it just equal? I think if, you, if we, if, well, let's think, let's Think of some red wines that are blends. Can you think of some? Chateauneuf de Pap. Yes, exactly. And all of the Southern Rhone and into the Languedoc. So they're, and they're mostly the reds that are blended. But white, white Rhone are nearly always blends, particularly from the south. So white Chateauneuf is a blend. White Cote de Rhone is usually a blend. Um, so you do see... Well, there's lots of blended wines. But I suppose we know famous single varietals like Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Pinot Grigio, Riesling, Gewurztraminer. But you do find... There's blends, so you get things like the Edelsvicker in Alsace, which is usually a blend of most of the noble varieties. What's, um, that, what's that called? Edelsvicker. Edelsvicker. We'll go off the beaten track with that one. Edelsvicker. Exactly. You, I you, like so that. You, you, I'm, I'm visualising Heidi and mountainsides. Yeah, I am. Goat Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember Goat Peter? Yeah. Yeah. I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd love to uh, look at that because um, I, I like the sound of it. Yeah. So I think if you think about it. White Rioja is a blend, and normal Rioja is a blend. Mm-hmm. Red Rioja, um, Provence Rosé we've mentioned. Port Champagne Carver is Cham- blended. Champagne, of course, yeah. Priorat from last week. Yes. Sort of Valpolicella is a blend. Um, quite a lot of Italian whites can be blended. Things like um, Suave. She has to think of one top of her head. They're blended. Um, you can get yeah. So you, it does. It pops up. White Bordeaux, in fact, is a blend. So mm. yeah. We're talking of Bordeaux. We're talking of Bordeaux, we've got to go into that in a minute. Well, we're going to be talking about Bordeaux in the second half, we aren't are. we? Because it is, it is just That's like a seamless. Ma- then. Wasn't there anybody just would think that we'd in. plan that exactly? Um, <laughs> anybody? <laughs> Bordeaux though is is like ultra famous. I mean, even if you don't really know anything about wine at all, yeah. you probably have heard of Bordeaux and are aware that it's a big wine making place. Yeah, and they do, uh, as far as I'm aware they make some of the, potentially some of the best wines or some of the highest priced wines for sure yeah, um, each year. Yeah. And the Grand Cru's and all of that business, Premier, First Growth and all of that. Yeah. I'm saying those like I know what they mean. We're going to find out right after this. You're listening to Uncourt with Brian and Kath. So it starts with the pauses. It's singular and quiet. Still in it is patient, intended as it grows, and we go from sunrise to sun falling, from daughter to sister, angels through Maria, are reaching and starting, but perfectly for reaching. Mission is joined with our children returning. There's blood and there's sweat and there's fears unabated. There's 
Stations are ten a penny. Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station. There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. There can be only one. One that's made entirely out of syrup. Uh, welcome back. You are listening to Uncorked with Brian and Kath. We just heard Alanis Morissette with Morning. Yeah, you see, we were busy chatting. Sorry, apologies for the delay there, everyone. We were just nattering away here, happily talking about the fate in Cookham at the weekend. Um, because that's, that's how our life rolls. And you wouldn't have noticed because you weren't listening to the words of the song. No, the I didn't. The chorus mentions blending. Oh, does it? Yeah. I was wondering. Not, not necessarily to do with wine, in fairness, but, you but know. But the word there. was in there. The word was in there, you know. That's good that's enough, good for, enough for us. Yeah. Yep, yep, that will do. Yeah. That's a winner. Uh, as well as the next subject, we are um, off Ooh, the beaten track, track, but on mm. the beaten track. We've, mm. Well, we've gone so far Walking off that we've on. come back on it. Yeah, full circle. Yeah. 
It's a warm day. Yes, go on. It's midsummer. Gorgeous. There's a light breeze. The sky's blue. The sky's blue. A few birds fly overhead. <laughs> I'm glad you did that this time, not me. <laughs> what bird that was. We've walked and wandered through vineyards. Yeah. And suddenly we find ourselves in front of some large chest beater gates. And we realise we've actually gone so far off the beaten track. We're back on it. Yep, yeah, we're in Bordeaux. We're in Bordeaux. In front of a glorious chateau. 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 You can practice your French again. Yeah, I'm not very good at French. My, all, all my accents sound, sound the same. So, um, <laughs> Bordeaux then, famous area. Famous, Must famous have heard area. of it, really. If, yeah. you, if you like one, you've almost certainly heard of it, I would imagine. But but why why that particular area? Why Bordeaux? What, what's why Bordeaux? made it? Because you wanted to do it. No, no, no. <laughs> but what's made it so sort of famous? And, and does it live up to its reputation? Is it the best? Is Those the are the questions well, I, I want. I don't, I don't know if I can answer emphatically it's definitely the best, but it definitely produces some good kit. Good kit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so some people would argue that the thing that separates it is its location. So both its, its climate and soil being perfect for high-quality viticulture. Mm-hmm. Um, and also its location in that it's a port city, which means that... Ships were going in and out of it, and traders were there, and merchants, which allowed the product to spread far and wide and gain popularity on a fairly global level fairly early on. So it's location serving two functions. One, obviously, wine production, and one also the ability to get that wine out to a discerning and appreciative public. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. okay. And then I guess as uh, as it became more and more successful, more more winemakers would go there and set up and well, i think yeah lots of them the chateaus do date back quite a long way yeah but yeah so it, it, it just it helps you know if you're in genuinely in the middle of nowhere up a mountainside that can only be achieved or you can only get to it on the back of a, a donkey it's going to be harder especially way back when a few hundred years ago or longer to get that wine out to the masses whereas if you're in a port then you do quite well well yeah yeah it would if you if you were mm. bringing it down the hill on the back of a donkey it could it would uh, take a while to get the volumes you require across the water <laughs> Sorry, Brian is now just collapsing laughing. I don't know whether he's visualising oh. me struggling with a donkey and some bottles of wine. This poor donkey would be exhausted. <laughs> yeah, not more pallets. <laughs> so, um, one thing I do know about Bordeaux is it, it does have a river. It does have a river, what, yeah. What river is it, do you know? Um, the Gironde estuary goes and it splits between the Dordogne and the Garonne. Okay. Now, so does that have an impact? I, I, it must have an impact. Yeah, it does. So, it's located, obviously, southwest France. Um, and it's near the Bay of Biscay. So it leads, the Bay of Biscay opens up into the Gironde estuary, which then cuts through the region, and it divides the region in half between the left bank mm-hmm. and the right bank, in the broadest sense of the word. So the left bank is the Medoc and that area around the Bordeaux town itself, and the other side, the right bank, is dominated by Saint-Emilion and Pomerol. Okay. Yeah. And it... it so the left bank is more... Is that more Merlot? No. That's what I thought. That's what you thought, right. So <laughs> so there's a couple of other things that are worth mentioning. Firstly, I said it's perfect viticultural area. It does have some challenges because you're near the Atlantic. It's a maritime climate. It can have issues with humidity and damp, which can be a challenge for a winemaker. Um, but on the flip side, it's also affected by the Gulf Stream, which 
can elongate and bring warm air through so you get a longer growing season so it elongates the growing season which allows them to reach optimal ripeness so those things in terms of its location some pluses and some minuses and as we know from the world of canopy management which we've talked out about before there are ways that winemakers can help control the more negative elements or viticulturalists to produce good quality grapes so I suppose the, the main things we look at is what are the great varieties of Bordeaux before we decide where they are. Okay. So what ones do you know? Uh, Merlot. Yep. Um, Cabernet. Yep. Sauvignon. Yep. No, uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, uh, I'm, I'm trying not to look <laughs> at my notes. I'm, my eyes were going like, yeah. no, no, don't cheat, don't cheat. Uh, so a Syrah? No. No Syrah. No Syrah. No Syrah. So Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot are the two famous ones. Okay. Cabernet Franc uh-huh. comes up. As a, as, not necessarily used as much as the other two, but is regularly referenced. But then you've got three more great varieties. You've got Petit Verdot, Petit Verdot, um, Malbec. When we talked about Cahors, oh, okay. yeah, it yeah. actually originates that whole area of southwest France, but it's in Bordeaux as a blending component as well. And the last one, believe it or not, is Carmenere. Carmenere, which is famous for being grown in Chile. Okay. Yeah. We so haven't spoken much about Carmenere. No, we? maybe we'll have to do a deep dive into Chile one week and, yeah. or head off the beaten track to talk about Carmenere. Yeah. Yeah. On a, on a real off the beaten track. Yes, exactly. With a donkey in the Andes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. No so, less. So, so Carmenere then, this, the, those, those um, like p- petite. Um, so Malbec, Malbec, Malbec and Carmenere are probably used the least. So if they are in the blends, they're used in smaller volumes, maybe one or two percent of the blend. So they're not widely planted and they're not used in huge amounts. They're used almost like a bit of seasoning, you know, oh, a bit okay. of salt and pepper. They just they just add another dimension of complexity. Um, petit, um, petit, petit Verdot, that does pop up a bit. Did I say Petit Syrah earlier by accident? Is no, I don't think so. No, I don't know. I might have done. I said Syrah and you, and you shot me down. <laughs> so anyway, it's Petit Verdot. If I did say that, I apologise. My brain obviously just had a bit of a brain no, fart. No, you did. You don't think so? <laughs> I don't know. I might have done. Okay, anyway, so anyway, anyway, it's Petit Verdot. That does come up a little bit more often. Um, and the dominant, the dominant variety, like you said, often depends on the side or of the estuary or the river that you're located on. Yeah. Because uh, do you know what? I, 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 I think I was thinking of this in the wrong way. I thought the noble varieties were always the main ones. They are. I mean, Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot are the main ones. Okay. Is Malbec not a noble? It's kind of noble. It's become more important thanks to Argentina. It's back in sort of the top 20 grape varieties. Oh, okay. okay. But, but not in Bordeaux. <laughs> yeah, not in Bordeaux. We're a bit sniffy about it. <laughs> anyway, um, in answer to your question earlier, the left bank, the Medoc, people would say is dominated by Cabernet Sauvignon, and the right bank, Santemilion and Pomerol, is dominated by Merlot. Now, uh, okay. there's very... I mean, and it really is a generalisation. And people always used to say that part of the reason for that is that there's a predominance of gravel and gravel soils on the left bank. And you find more clay and clay soils on an argilo calcare on the right bank. Okay. And that's partly because Cabernet Sauvignon likes free-draining soils. It doesn't like to get its feet wet, so it does better when it's in gravel, which is obviously naturally going to be a more free-draining soil. And the opposite applies to Merlot, so it does well in the damper soils. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the and it also helps, some people would argue, there are colder soils, so it helps temper its sugar accumulation and its ripening, so that it doesn't ripen too quickly. But, you know, it's... Yeah. So the, the blends that go on in mm-hmm. Bordeaux, they have, do they have to be? Is it appellation control that they have to be the ones that we've yes. mentioned? Yeah. It is? Yeah. Okay. And so they, they are usually predominantly one or the other, but that's the way it works. And you'll have a vintage where someone will say, 
oh, it's more of a Cabernet vintage on you know, so that it, and but what you'll see then is that maybe the percentage of Merlot is slightly less than other years on the right bank, but it does it is usually the dominant grape variety in the blends, and so you do get a slight stylistic difference between the two, which always sounds like you'd be easy to identify on paper until you taste blind, and then of course you mix it all up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet. Yeah. Now I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here a bit, but I've heard these things like um, um, first growth, a Bordeaux first yes. growth, or a, a Grand Cru or Premier, and is that is that unique to Bordeaux? Is this where it all came from? Is it, is it snobbery or is it actually a no, premier no, it, growth is pretty special? Yes. So there is a classification system and we've talked about appellation systems and how they tend to make things more complicated. And I think it you could argue that Bordeaux contributes to that, but it is loosely easy to understand. Okay. So the primary classification system that you're talking about is the 1855 classification in Bordeaux. That's the one, yeah. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, and it obviously happened in 1855, but it focuses primarily on the red wines of the Medoc and a little bit of sweet wine as well. Um, under that classification, they decided which were the very best chateaus. It was mostly done on the wines that achieved the most money when they were sold. But in fairness, people, for the most part, pay more for things that are better. Yeah. And so there, there, there was a degree of correlation there. So it was put in place and there were initially only four first growths. In 1973, Mouton Rothschild joined the fold. So the top is the first growth. So a Premier Cru Classé, which is the one that you're referring to. So they call them first growth clarets. And that's Lafitte, Latour. So Chateau Lafitte, Chateau Latour, Chateau Margaux. Chateau, uh, so Oatbriand, and then Mouton Rothschild, who was added in in 1973. So the, that's the, the only real amendment. Is that five? Five. Yeah, there's five first growths, and then you have second growths, third growths, fourth growths, and fifth growths. And in essence, it looks a little bit like a pyramid. So there's a, you know the five at the top, sure. a few more second growths, more third, more fourth, more fifth. So the, the, these growths are actual chateaus rather than the, yes. anything to do with the grapes being picked early or anything. Exactly. So I thought a, a, a first growth was something to do with the grapes being picked early. No, it's, a, it's to do with their status. Oh, it's the property, yeah. Okay, so a first growth is the property, is the chateau. Yep. And there's five right at the top. Rothschilds. Uh, Mouton Rothschild, Lafitte, Latour, Margot and Aubriand. And Mar- yeah, Margot. Yeah. Lafitte, Latour. Oh, that's Oak I missed Oak Brion, oh, which okay. is down in Grave. Okay, okay. So it's the only one that's outside the, the key communes in the in Pesac Liana. Oh, right, okay. So, and, yeah. And so is it each of these first growths then, they are, they're a chateau. Do they just they, have one? They have a property. Yeah. The vineyard, all, all the grapes that make the wines come from their property. So they have a number of different wines within Margot, for example. Um. Potentially, but they, they have a finite area. So you have the chateau and it owns land. Yeah. And on that land are their vineyards. And they harvest from those vineyards. And what they usually have is their first wine, which is, so in the case of, let's say, um, Mouton Rothschild is Mouton. Yeah, Mouton Rothschild. But then they have super, they have second growths. And they sometimes have little subsidiary labels. So the younger vines or the barrels that don't make it into the first growth will go into the second wine. Oh. And so, and it's usually a little bit cheaper. And then, yeah, they have, I guess like it's a bit like... A diffusion range, so like Versace having a diffusion range that's more affordable. Yeah, yeah, than, yeah. Than the Couture. Okay. If that oh, makes sense. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so that this is a premier. Uh, no, that's a, a, a first growth. First growth, yeah. What's premier a premier crew then? 
Oh, we've got to go to Burgundy to talk about Premier Cru. Oh, that's, so a that's, different, that's a completely so they, different they, they area. They are Premier Cru Classe. They are first growth, so if you're putting it into French, but they're classified first growth. But a Premier Cru vineyard, they don't have those in Bordeaux. They're oh, okay. based, it's based on the property and the property's position in the hierarchy of classification. Oh, it does get complicated. Oh, I know. Crikey. I know, I just, know. Just, well, just make wait. some plonk, come are you, on. Are you ready for this? Yeah, go on. So in 1955, the official classification for Santa Emilion was created. And this, in theory, is updated every 10 years. So they decided rather than having one that was set in stone, they were going to update it every 10 years. I mean, let's have a row every 10 years, basically. Brilliant. you can imagine, yeah. Yeah, we like that. I think the last one it was done was around 2006. Okay. So maybe not every 10 years. Um, in 1959... The classification of Grave was set up or finalised, although it was initially classified in 53, they revised it in 59, and that's more or less stayed the same. You then have the Cru Bourgeois, who sit below the fifth, you would say, broadly speaking, in the pyramid, below the fifth growth, on the left bank in Medoc. But this began as an unofficial classification. I mean, this is the most complicated thing ever, but became something that could enjoy official status. Um, it was a last updated in 2003, but there were various legal turns as things happen, and the classification was annulled in 2007, like a dodgy marriage. Um, and then a plan was put in place to revive it, um, but it was still annulled. So 78 producers took legal action against the 2003 classification, which partly caused the annulment. And in September 2010, a new list of crew bourgeois was unveiled, but it's no longer recognised the classification. I was like... Okay, well, that's really clear. Thanks for making that helpful and easy to understand. Wow. No wonder people get... Yeah. Get confused. And then yeah. the last one is Cru Artisan, which you don't see all that often. But then on the right bank in Santa Emilia and Pomerol... It's not different over there. Of course it is. Oh. Why make it easy? So we said two major appellations, Santa Emilia and Pomerol. That we can grasp. The former, so Pomerol, it has no official classification system. It's sort of unspoken. Who are the top chateaus? Le Pan, Petrus... Basically, okay. yeah, Certain and a few others that maybe they just charge more money for their wines and they sort of sit at the top of the tree, but it's, it's not an official hierarchy as such. Um, but in Santa Emilion, the very top level is Premier Grand Cru Classe, and you've got Premier Grand Cru Classe A, category A, which is the best, and category B, which are almost the best, and then below that you'll have wines that just say Santa Emilion Grand Cru Classe, so they miss the Premier out, they're a notch down. And then finally, Santa Emilion Grand Cru, which there are many of, and definitely not the same as Premier Grand Cru Classe. Okay. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty complex, isn't it? And you've really got to know. They're not making it easy for you. No, because you could go in and and see one of the, um, what was the bottom one? Grand Cru. Just a Grand Cru. Yeah, and I I've would got look at that. on Grand Cru and you'll be yeah, like... Yeah, I'm like, wow, I've got a yeah. Grand Cru. But actually, it's... It's very different. Very different from... Generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, the price tag will help help you differentiate where they're located. Yeah. On that sort of hierarchy scale. Yeah, but you could get some unscrupulous... Yeah. People. I'm thinking I could make a few quid down the meat market with that. Oh, I know, exactly. <laughs> You've got to find... That's why you need an honest wine merchant. You do. Thankfully, there is one there. <laughs> there is one there. Me, me, me. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it isn't necessarily that easy to understand. And the other thing that's even harder is that they don't list... Well, in Santa Milion, it will say whether it's Grand Cru, a Premier Grand Cru Classe, or a Grand Cru Classe. But on the left bank, they don't. 
So I think you had a very nice bottle of wine for your birthday, mm. but it didn't tell you on the label that it was a fifth growth, did it? Was that a fifth growth? That was a fifth growth. Wasn't. It was. Crikey. Yeah. Cost a few bob as well, I'll tell you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was my birthday, though. Exactly. You had a treat on your birthday. But so, that's why it's so tricky, because you don't, unless you know the properties, then it's almost impossible to know exactly you know, where they sit in the hierarchy without, thank God for Google, in that regard. So if you are looking then at getting um, a bottle of first growth yeah, or a premier crew first growth thing, whatever. Premier Grand Cru Classé. Yes, one of those. You need the Classé on the end. Classé, yeah. And yes. the Premier Grand. Um, what, what, what sort of bunts are you looking at? Oof. That's a very good question. I don't buy them, so I can take this off my head. Enough. More, more than your birthday bottle. So what, I mean, are we, are we talking, not, not that champagne uh, that we spoke about a couple of months ago. No, no. But you do, but the, the difficult thing is, you know, you often hear of people spending loads of money in restaurants and things. Yeah. That person who had a receipt and they spent, you know, 40 grand on wine or something. And those are restaurant prices and rare wines. So sure. it makes it harder. But, 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 but just as a, a really rough thing, a, gr- a Grand Cru, are we looking at 1,000? Are we uh, looking at 500? Probably anywhere between that, depending uh, on the Around vintage. that sort and of yeah, area. Because that's when vintage does come in. Right. Particularly at that end, does a vintage have the reputation to command a higher or lower price tag? And yeah. that's where it becomes... So, that, so that's a, a lot of money for a bottle of wine, yeah. e- e- either end of that scale, yeah. that estimate there. Yeah. I, I mean, is it worth just buying a glass just to try it? I mean, how much was a glass be? Oh, yeah, exactly, because you're in a restaurant, it tends to cost more. But the benefit then is you're not buying the whole bottle, and if they've got it under Coravan, yeah. you can at least try it and see, is it worth more? Do you know what? If anybody's got a Grand Cru out there, a premier Grand Cru Classé, yeah. who wants us to give a real honest opinion on it, um, contact us here at uh, Brian. Yeah, we're very happy to taste. At river.radio. Uh, bring in some crisps, and we'll let you know if it works. Can you imagine that? The thing is, you have them occasionally. When I worked with Bordeaux to be involved buying on Premier, it was like another lifetime ago, you know, you'd get to taste these amazing wines, but usually unfinished from barrel in the early, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning, which <laughs> you find yourself thinking, that's the only way I ever taste these wines. Wow. <laughs> but they also have a huge amount of longevity. So you are buying wines for cellaring very often as well, because they're made to be kept. Right. Yep. Yeah. Even now. Goodness, do you know yeah. what? There's so much in Bordeaux. We could probably this, do a whole another show. Exactly. Yeah, but um, but anyway, um, we have come to the end of the second section of Uncorked. I, today, I don't know. It's flying by, Brian. It's flying by. It's flying yeah. by. But oh, what's next? Yeah. What's next? Well, we're going to listen to uh, Iron and Wine, um, yeah. such great hits, and then after that, don't go anywhere because we are going. To do something else. What are we going to do? I've forgotten. Oh, Any menu match. match. Honestly, gonna, what am I going to do with you? We're going to match. We're going to let you know what crisps, what food. We'll see you in a bit.
Welcome back. It's Uncorked. It's Brian and Kath. Yeah. There we go. There we are. It's Thursday. What is the time? It's 1 147. We've just uncorked our bottle because we we're going to match it with some, some food. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Well, we've been talking about Bordeaux. We've talking been talking about, about all those really posh, expensive wines and yeah. the, 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 the amount of effort and time and love and passion and expertise that goes into it. Yeah. I think there would be some French winemakers turning, just absolutely going mad if they knew we were going to match it with Monster Munch. (laughs) 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 Can you imagine? Would would you, do they do those beef Monster Munch still? Yeah. Would that be your preference? You wouldn't do pickled onion, would you, with her? Oh, you know, when were you the Gewurz Dramina? Yeah, but not with a... No, not with a Bordeaux. No, good no, I've got a bit of class. <laughs> so what would your 
Let's just do it now. What, what would your crisp choice be for your Bordeaux? Well, you know, I'm thinking, you know, the 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 type, the you know, the the the, the Cabernet Sauvignons yep. and the um, the Merlots and the ones I haven't heard of, the Carmenere. Carmenere. Yeah, that one. Um, I'm thinking that that's got that's got a bit of body to it. It's mm-hmm. got a bit of bit of uh, bit of richness bit of weight bit of, rich, bit of weight bit of structure to it. and and you know i think something's going to have to sort of stand up yeah. for itself with that i don't think ready ready salted is going to cut the mustard so what are you going to go with ah do you know it well cheese and onions always an easy one because it's got cheese, cheese in it yeah. so what's it um <laughs> or, or bowl, a bowl of darmayak and a, and a bowl of what's, what's it? it perfect classy Oh yeah, I, do you know? I don't really know. Maybe beef crisps, those posh beef crisps again beef from crisps. La- last yeah. week. Yeah, I think that'd be a nice choice. Yeah. So when you had your smart Bordeaux for your birthday, yeah, what did you what did you eat? You said I just drank it. Oh no, we did eat something, did we? Um, oh goodness, I can't even remember. <laughs> it's like too far it, back. It, it was really good though. <laughs> I just remember the wine. You see that? That's that's a good answer. Though. I just remembered the wine. Yeah. Just oh, well, we were outside because I sent you a picture of it, didn't did, I? As yeah, a joke, yeah, yeah, going, yeah. "Kaz, is this any good?" <laughs> yeah. I was like, "Oh, you're drinking well." So Gather was saying to me earlier on in uh, the the previous show, actually, yeah. she's going, "Oh, people always just ask me if this wine's any good and send me pictures of it." And I said, "And oh, I have I'm to re- say, I genuinely don't mind people doing that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you, you did say that you yeah. don't mind. So I just thought, as a bit of a joke, I'd I'd do it with that. Well, I was just showing off that I got a nice bottle of wine for my birthday. Um, yeah. But we were outside, yes, so it were. might have been a barbecue, actually. Oh. Yeah, might have been. So I'm going to throw you a curveball here, oh, no. just to get you on your toes. Go on then. So white Bordeaux, yeah, isn't always sweet. We didn't really touch on Sauternes. We'll leave that for another week. But white Bordeaux is often a blend of Sauvignon and Semillon. So one, I think you genuinely enjoy it because you like a Sauvignon, and I think you'd enjoy the the dynamic. Yeah. But if you had to choose crisps, where would you go with that? Oh well, we we, we had a Sauvignon before, and we, it went surprisingly well with salt and vinegar, didn't it? Yeah. That's so I might just went. I might just be safe and stay with that. But do do they actually um, put the the Bordeaux whites in barrel? Because I don't think I like whites that have been in in wood. They do some bits, yeah. Some, but it's not usually a hundred percent, and it's not normally all new. But some do have a different character. Yeah, and but others others don't. So I I, I think I like um, white wines that have been you know just see a little, less wood, see less wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's fine. Yeah, there you go. But we're going to go with salt and vinegar with them. But anyway, back to real food. Okay, real food then. Real food. So, okay, so there's a, there's a rule of thumbs that you can apply here. Rule of thumbs. Rule of thumbs. Um, the first being that if you're really cracking open a really good bottle of something, keep the food simple. If you, I mean, if you're in a really smart restaurant with a brilliant sommelier who can match all those components, go for it. But if you're at home, just good quality ingredients, keep it simple, and then open your best bottles. Because you if you're opening a bottle that's really smart, you know, five, six hundred pound bottle of first growth claret, you know, you don't want to just drown it with loads of different flavours, so you just go simple. So I'd go with just a seared steak. Okay. Can't go wrong. Really, just something as simple as that, steak Mm, and chips. Really good quality, yeah. Steak, chips, little little, um, mushroom on the side, perhaps. Maybe half tomato. Half tomato. Yeah. Little bit of uh, rocket to garnish. Have you been to the salad bar, sir? (laughs) (laughs) You see, that'd be perfect. Um, but actually, could you? Could it, I'm just thinking. Is something like a beef bourguignon? Mm-hmm. 
Is that too... No. That, that, that would work, wouldn't it? Yeah, although Bourguignon implies Burgundy, and it works oh. well with Burgundy, but yes, it would work. So it's the young, younger wines particularly, so if you've got a young Santomelion or a young, a young Pomerol or even a young Medoc anywhere in the Medoc, that will work nicely with any kind of beef or lamb stew, those kind of things. Yeah. They work well with that. So younger wines and more tannin and those hearty dishes work really well. Okay. And what, what, what about for the, um, the vegetarians? What, what would you go with that? You wouldn't go corn sausage. Well, I mean, you could. You can have a corn sausage if you want. Yeah, but would it work? Would it work? That's a good question. I think yeah. one of those weird Beyond Burger things... Oh. With all the trimmings would be quite nice with a young Bordeaux. Yeah. Also, um, things that are sort of naturally more meaty, things like mushrooms. So you wouldn't necessarily have fish with like lemon and those kind of flavours. But if involved with that fish, there are things like red wines and tomatoes. Or you've got a vegetarian dish with, which has been cooked with red wine, tomato, maybe aubergine, roasted vegetables, sort of more hearty autumnal fare. Mm-hmm. That will work well with. A red Bordeaux. Do you think a pizza would go with it? Yeah. Ah, oh, I want pizza and yeah. steak now. Yeah, and weirdly, my brain's thinking of you know the um, aubergine parmigiana, you know that you you get from southern Italy, where you get sort of the layers of aubergine, sort oh, of like okay. yeah. sort of like a moussaka without the mince. Yes. Yeah, that kind of thing that would, would probably go. work. Not particularly. What is I, I would imagine is what people are eating in that area. I mean, steak no. probably. But uh, lots of lamb. There's lots of lamb, is there? Yeah. But what, do, what is the cuisine of the area? Because generally, as a rule of thumb, that's what, what we go yeah, with well, most of the time. Yeah, beef, lamb. Just general. You know, think about French food. Yeah, but... The, but, but my, my memories of Bordeaux, yeah. okay, when yeah. going to eat in Bordeaux, always... Coquille Saint-Jacques to start. Coquille Saint-Jacques. So oh. um, scallops. All right. Scallops to start and then lamb. That's what I always remember from any meals I used to have out in Bordeaux or that you were served. Okay, because I was going to say, it, you said it was, um, mm. it's a port, really. It's, it's on the Bay of Biscay, so the Atlantic side there. Yeah, um, which is why I mentioned the fish, but having fish with... With, with that doesn't, with doesn't more necessarily... And actually restaurants where they just do meat and sort of chips cooked and things like duck fat. If you like, you're an omnivore, it's pretty good fare. <laughs> if you're a vegan or vegetarian, it's a more challenging place to visit. Well, I think France in general is pretty difficult for a, a, vegan. a vegan i mean they they do eat pretty much anything yeah right i i, I, I recall a meal yeah oh gosh I'm, I'm going through the trauma again um around we were there at mardi gras so shrove tuesday and it basically was the whole pig have i mentioned this before to you i don't think so yeah so the meal it was it felt like numerous courses and it was the whole pig are you are you saying you started off at the nose and sort of ate the brain and then went? Well, it to felt the... like that, yeah. So you basically ate bits of the whole pig. The main part, which was obviously sort of like a roast suckling pig with pomerol that day, actually was delicious. Mm. Yeah, but it was a some of the other bits. There were some challenging things in there. Some of the other bits that they usually put in the sausages, so you don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm lost for words now. I should never have mentioned it because I'm reliving the trauma. Normally we finish this and I'm starving hungry. I have definitely yeah. nipped that in the bud. Yes, yes. Yeah. Sausage casserole <laughs> and a nice Bordeaux wine. Exactly. A saucisson. Yeah. What's the what's French sausage? Well, 
which way do you want to go? Do you want to go towards an Andriette, which is sort of innards, or do you want to go towards a Toulouse sausage, which is more sort of... Toulouse, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'll (laughs) I'll go that way. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So, okay, you could could do a bit of that, couldn't you? Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, And, of course, as always, Mm -hmm. it's going to be cheese. I think, yeah, any cheese you like. So, things like Sautern, which is sweet, and white Bordeaux work brilliantly with cheese, so don't forget them. But for red Bordeaux, most cheeses. So I, I like it with not too strong, harder cheeses. Because mm-hmm. I don't want it to be overpowering and the tannins can sometimes overpower. But if not, I, I, I tend to avoid... I don't have as much red Bordeaux with cheese as I would choose to have Okay, white. When you, when you do that, again, if you're having a nice one, are you just keeping your cheeses pretty simple and and the yes. crackers as well yeah. because you yeah, can get yeah. fancy crackers with all sorts of yeah i'd go simple or just go with a good quality bread yeah oh okay yeah fine just with good classic baguette it's not gonna hurt is it no baguette and a bit of um cheese bowl of what's it's bag of what's it's on the side bottle of bordeaux Sorted. Yeah, there you go. That's your evening sorted. Out. There we go. It's you are of you. listening to Uncorked, <laughs> full of helpful tips and advice on how to um, enjoy Who your what sits in Bordeaux. Yeah, that, that's that's my takeaway from today. Your your thousand pound premier crew classic first growth from Bordeaux and a bag of what sits. Perfect. Any more advice? You can just email Brian at River. <laughs> I'm glad that you're taking that one. <laughs> And next week, we're going to veer a bit more off the beaten track again, and we will look at the Bordeaux satellites, because we didn't touch on them today. And actually, if you want really great value from Bordeaux, that's where you head. Because you were saying earlier on that a lot of the time, it's like just what's fashionable. And not that they're not yeah. making great what's wine, famous. but yeah. what's famous. Yeah. They're making great wine, but you're paying top notch And you often it. find that those winemakers own smaller properties elsewhere. So, you know, we'll, we'll look at those next week, maybe. And we're also going to look at Semillon, because we didn't talk about the white so much. And Semillon as a white grape variety tends to get forgotten a bit. Okay. So we're going to talk about Semillon. All right, then. Well, I look forward to that. Because, yeah. um, you know, I, I do enjoy wine. So I'm looking forward to that. Now, don't go anywhere, because on River Radio, we've got loads of stuff coming up over the weekend. Um, and in it's nearly the weekend. Fact, it's nearly weekend. Yay. Uh, don't forget, this evening, um, you can listen to... Uh, I can hear myself. Oh, that's it. Uh, I've got the app on, that's why. Um, Do you sound like... That was weird. I can hear another voice of myself. It's just the voices in my head. It happens all the time. Uh, (laughs) Ask Annabelle tonight at 7 o'clock. Your sex and relationship questions, answers. She's um, absolutely brilliant. So do listen to that. And then... Deepest, darkest desires and questions all Mm. answered. Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, Tomorrow, the morning brew, 7 till 9. And then we have got uh, Lars with What's On When at 11 o'clock. And then... Then, oh, what else have we got? Um, pull the other one. Oh, hey, how tomorrow. Could you, how could you forget six that? Six till seven o'clock, the comedy show. To see you into Saturday. I say comedy. It's just a load of nonsense. But that, and I tell you that's what, because I'm involved in it. That will match well with a glass of Bordeaux. It will indeed. It will indeed. <laughs> now, don't forget, you can go to our app, um, River. Uh, go to, uh, what is Rap it? app. Go to the app. You can play us on the app, on Alexa, on mobile and the web. Yeah, and don't forget, you can listen again. And yes. you can listen to us on podcast, on your favourite podcast supplier. That's it from us. We'll see you next, next week. week for more Uncorked. And crisps. Definitely. With Brian and Kath. <laughs> see you then. Have a great week. Ooh.
where radio stations are ten a penny. Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station. There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. 